If you could put it into one sentence, how important do you really think overall it is to prioritise gut health? I can say it in one word, very. (laughs) Hi, my name is Ella McChrystal. The New Mind is a show that discusses all things brain, body, soul, in order to discover how you can cultivate a new mind, a healthy mind, a happy mind. Did you know how vital the brain-gut link is in terms of mood and behaviour? The gut microbiome refers to the collection of microorganisms that reside in the gastrointestinal tract. These microorganisms, which include bacteria, viruses, fungi and other microorganisms, play an important role in many aspects of health, including digestion, immune system, function and metabolism. In recent years, there is a growing evidence of the role of the gut microbiome in human brain function and behaviour. For example, studies have shown that alterations in the gut microbiome are associated with neurological and psychiatric disorders such as autism spectrum disorder, depression and anxiety disorders. Here are some interesting facts about the brain-gut axis. The brain and the gut are connected via the vagus nerve, which is the longest cranial nerve in the body. The gut contains over 100 million neurons, which is more than the spinal cord. 90% of the body's serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter that regulates mood, is produced in the gut. The gut microbiome, which is the collection of microorganisms, lives in the gut can communicate with the brain via various signaling pathways. The gut-brain axis has been implicated in various neurological conditions, including anxiety, depression and Parkinson's disease. Stress can impact the gut microbiome, leading to changes in the composition of microbiome and in turn impacting the gut-brain axis. Importantly, the gut-brain axis is bidirectional, meaning that signals can travel from the gut to the brain from the brain to the gut. The gut-brain axis is involved in the regulation of appetite and food intake. The gut can communicate with the brain through the release of hormones such as ghrelin, which is responsible for signaling hunger. Research has shown that alterations in the gut microbiome can impact brain function and behaviour, leading to changes in cognition, mood and even social behaviour. One way in which the gut microbiome can impact the brain is through the production of neurotransmitters. For example, certain species of bacteria in the gut are capable of producing serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter that is known to regulate mood and anxiety. In addition to producing neurotransmitters, the gut microbiome can also influence the immune system, which is closely linked to brain function. Studies have shown that changes in the gut microbiome can lead to alterations, which in turn can impact brain function and behaviour. Another way in which gut microbiome can impact brain function and behaviour is through the production of short-chain fatty acids, SCFAs. SCFAs are produced by certain species of gut bacteria and have been shown to play a role in regulating brain function and behaviour. For example, research has shown that SCFAs can improve cognitive function and reduce anxiety and depression-like behaviour in animal models. In addition to these direct effects on brain function and behaviour, 
alterations in the gut microbiome can also impact the gut-brain axis. The list is endless. And I think there is an importance of talking more about the sort of gut impact. There is growing evidence of the role of the gut microbiome in human brain function and behavior. And overall research has shown that alterations in the gut microbiome can impact brain function and behavior, lead to changes in cognition, mood, and even social behavior. While the exact mechanisms underlying these effects are still being investigated, it is clear the gut microbiome plays an important role in many aspects of health, including brain function and behavior. So, with all that being said, I've brought a specialist today onto the show. This is, for all of you that don't know Dr. Sunny already, this is Dr. Sunny Patel, who is an award-winning ultimate wellness coach and published clinician slash scientist, as well as a registered nutritional coach, PT, and indoor cycle instructor with specialist interests and accreditation in eating addiction, lifestyle medicine, and gut health. Dr. Sunny, it's great to see you. Welcome to the new mind. And thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to being part of everything that is the new mind. I'm so pleased to have you. Most people who've seen us do the odd bit on uh, Instagram will know that we've worked together before, but we've done some work together because I think we're quite aligned in the way that we think about health overall. You know, you're out of all the people that I know, sort of really very, very holistic, I think, in your approach to health, which is why I think you're perfect for this podcast, really, because everything you do definitely leads back to that that whole health view. So if you can tell us a bit more about your background and what sort of drives you to be in this kind of work. Yeah. So look, thank you for the really nice introduction and the compliments. I think, yeah, you and I align because we really do look at people from a humanistic, holistic perspective. And I think that's the beauty of what you do and we align extremely well. So kind of where, where, what led me to get to where I am now on the new mind, as it were. So I have a background in healthcare that spans over 15, 20 years in different disciplines, all the way from academia to practicing in different clinical settings um, and doing kind of corporate work as well. My personal lived in experience of having an eating addiction and a chronic gut health issue ultimately led me on this journey of seeking kind of more of a self-empowered journey of wellness. And because of that, that led me to also empower other people and create my own um, practice, essentially, which helps people discover their own health journey um, and long-term wellness and sustainable kind of credibility in health outcomes through a very much holistic approach. So mind, body, and soul, essentially. And gut health comes because of my own personal experiences. And I just am fascinated with everything to do with the gut, essentially. As you've said there, you've had your own real struggles with with health. Tell me a bit more about that, because I think what's really interesting about you is your drive and alignment to the holistic point of view. But it's easy, I think, when you've sort of had your own health problems to to really I guess not give up that's the wrong thing to say but to feel like the world is against you and there's nothing that you Mm. can do and I think a lot of people have that experience when they're poorly it's it's all very well and good 
being in a good space after you've come out of it, but during the the illness or the the worst parts of the illness, you've obviously still had a drive to want to educate and help others in some way. So tell me a bit about that, because that can't have been easy. I know that you have been very poorly at times. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a good point here as well, that especially for people that have chronic conditions, the journey is always ongoing. And I think the worst is always when we have a flare up or an issue when we feel the most down, but the drive comes from the fact that I will always have a chronic condition. So I was diagnosed with Crohn's, um, which is inflammation of the gut um, in 2014. And that was after kind of many years of symptoms that I dismissed. I was using male bravado, male pride, cultural ego and expectations that I set on myself. And essentially I used the British colloquialism, you know, I just felt I was under the weather. Yeah. And I just thought that was going to continue. You know, I think a lot of people assume stress and anxiety and other things can last for a very long time. So I probably had symptoms for five years before I was diagnosed. Um, and that involved, you know, um, severe weight loss, um, going to the toilets a, a lot of times. Um, and every time I was opening my bowels, I was bleeding. There was nausea, bloating, cramping, arthritic pain um, in my kind of late 20s. So you can imagine it had such a toll on not just my physical health, but my mental well-being and capacity as well. But I just kind of soldiered on because I felt I had to prove to myself that, you know, I was a trooper and this wasn't going to limit me. So I've navigated that diagnosis of Crohn's disease for a number of years until it was changed in 2021. So I was hospitalized during the lockdown um, twice uh, because obviously I'm a glutton for punishment. And that's when they changed my diagnosis to colitis, which is inflammation of the colon as opposed to the whole um, gastrointestinal tract. But that still has left me kind of still with those essential symptoms that I mentioned before. But it's really empowered me. I think my journey in creating my own clinic and Dish Dash Deets was more about what was I lacking when I was scared and what did I need? And sometimes it's not always a resource of information. Sometimes you just need almost a poster child or someone that you can look to and say, I see myself in that person. And unfortunately, especially with inflammatory bowel disease or chronic conditions, it's very hard to see a person of an ethnic minority, a person that comes from a working class background, a person of you know queer orientation um, that understands and gets those different intersections and how to navigate it and also give you kind of credible science um, from that as well. That's what's so powerful about you doing what you're doing is that you talked about a poster person, but you are that person for so many people, but you have the clinical background to back it up, which just adds this layer. And I hate to say that, but everything is in layers, isn't it? Because if you think about it, you know, you can go to a doctor or to a scientist who will understand it from a very clinical point of view, but you have that personal lived experience. And you mentioned earlier that you carried on for sort of five years without really doing much about it. The stress of feeling that unwell must have been exacerbating the problem. Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting part to this as well, isn't there? Um, You and I talk about this a lot outside of all this is dissociation. And I have to say, I think I completely suppressed the exacerbated elements of the stress and anxiety and passed it off because I I think I just survived in fight or flight. 
and it was essentially just fight, 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 fight. So you can imagine what it did to like just my sympathetic system. It's just completely fatigued. I was in adrenal fatigue, but just thought, oh, it's just because I'm tired and I'm overworking. I was working seven day weeks just to prove to myself that I wasn't almost a slave to my body or what was going on. And it was only until I realized that there has to be something more than this, you know, and I can't survive like this, that I then forced myself to go to the doctor. What was that moment? You know, not necessarily the hospitalization and the doctor, but I talk a lot with my clients about the mind, body, soul, because Mm. we can't really look after one without paying attention to the others. So something that comes up a lot is the vagus nerve and how the vagus nerve is the spaghetti junction of the nervous system. And it really helps to bring our nervous system back to balance. If, If it's overused, it gets a bit lazy. And we start to notice physical symptoms of stress and anxiety. So for you, obviously you had the medical stuff going on, but what was that moment where you recognized I'm feeling stressed as well as very, very poorly? So what was that? I will say that I think I've been more in tune to my stress response the last three years, I would say, just because I was going through a lot of other subliminal, subconscious, deep-rooted elements that I think I just put it down to that. Mm. Whereas the last three years, I've started to be able to link my physical condition with the mental well-being and the vagus nerve element. So I think for me, what what really started kind of me on this journey of understanding the gut beyond just what it does from a digestive element, but actually the gut-brain aspect was that the fact that, and then, and this sounds extremely strange to the listeners, I was losing my voice, not internal and, and not just physical, but just generally my voice of being seen and heard. And that's just because I was completely being owned by the condition itself. And because I let the condition override everything, this is where I say I'd lost my voice in terms from a health perspective, from a subconscious perspective, and from a well-being perspective. I was constantly ill, riddled with kind of colds and viruses and little things like that. Fatigue, adrenal fatigue was the biggest thing. Mm. And I don't think I ever appreciated adrenal fatigue until the last three years or when I was in hospital. Because you almost feel like it's an under the weather complex, but it isn't. Adrenal fatigue is a thing. I realized that I was just constantly addicted and driven by cortisol yes. and adrenaline. I completely forgot what serotonin and dopamine meant for me and even oxytocin, like completely had suppressed all that. And that's when I started noticing things like sore throats, you know, my whole kind of just understanding that kind of my gut instinct just little nuances that we forget actually the vagus nerve is so inherently important for. And when I started deep diving into the science, and you start thinking like the vagus nerve is the largest cranial nerve of all 12 cranial nerves. There's a reason for that. It's just so explicitly important for so many things. And I started getting that link because I have colitis and IBS. And I've definitely found, especially with my own patients and my clinical practice, IBS definitely more so is rooted with vagus nerve hypersensitivity or over kind of sensitivity or overaction and as you say sometimes underaction because it's just completely become lazy because it's overstimulated for so long they've started realizing that actually if we can work on stress management and vagus nerve and the stimulation it has far more profound effect and i've started using that even in my own management of my condition 
so many things that you've said there are really important. I think, you know, gut issues are not easy to talk about, are they? That's why I think this is really important to talk about again and again and again, because people are still embarrassed to talk about gut issues, stomach, you know, bowel movements, all these things that are seen as very taboo. You know, people don't like to talk about sex. They don't like to talk about bowels and they don't like to talk about death. So, you know, these are really important subjects because I'm sure there's so many ways you can hear conversations like this. But like I said, there's something special about you because the clinical background, as well as the lived experience, as well as sort of um, the cultural differences and all these different things that are entwined into your experience that other people will perhaps not be comfortable talking to their friends about. And with your experience and your knowledge of all things stress management, the brain, the way it connects, the vagus nerve, this is where I think you've got so much to offer for just anybody that's interested in the general well-being. Because as you said there, the the vagus nerve is the largest cranial nerve. So we're all looking at the external, aren't we? We're looking at what we look like, going to the gym, I know you're a PT as well, all these really Mm. important things. But this vagus nerve is the most, I think, the most important part of us. And you mentioned serotonin and you mentioned dopamine. Now, the vagus nerve, the gut, the brain, they're all vital for serotonin, dopamine and GABA as well, which are all neurotransmitters. And everybody thinks that neurotransmitters are all just produced in the brain. We talk about stress because actually some of these neurotransmitters, all of them actually are also produced in the in the gut. And you said you'd forgotten what it felt like because you were living mm. in this cortisol response. So for someone that's perhaps living in the cortisol response now mm-hmm. that doesn't realize they've forgotten what it feels like, explain to me what you notice as the distinct difference between living in cortisol response and actually feeling the good neurotransmitters. You know, I think the best way of saying is how I've been able to live my life to the fullest since I've been able to actually work with my vagus nerve and my gut health. And that's because, and I will say it's because I'm now more in tune with myself and my surroundings. And actually it just helps from an emotional regulation perspective. So I've realized that when you are emotionally and neurotransmitterly insensitive. So ergo, you know, you're not able to actually respond to all these different neurotransmitters and just constantly cortisol driven. I just realized that my perception of so many things and situations in life were very skewed and blinkered. And now actually I'm able to appreciate and understand kind of the different responses I have to different situations. You know, there's such such things like the placebo and the nocebo effect, or, you know, very much like if you spoil a child, they will no longer understand what the oxytocin response is, you know, the gift response. So it's very much like that. If you get so used to and addicted to cortisol and adrenaline, you know nothing else other than this is the way that my life should be. And a lot of my patients will say to me, it's like, I know nothing else. This is my life. This is what I'm meant to be. And I'm like, no, no, this is not how your life is meant to be. Because you haven't had the richness of evidence and experience to know. And this goes back to the first comment you said about being able to talk about things. Fortunately, the the reality of life is that we are governed by the bowels, by sex, and by death. Yes. 
Yeah. And the gut, the gut actually is responsible for all three of those elements. It couldn't be more important. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Which is why it's extremely important that we are able to talk about this. And I think this is where, as much as sometimes I'm quite um, an old soul millennial, I will say the Gen Z and the younger generation have really embraced the openness and the power of being able to talk about things like sex and poo. Yeah and death and birth and things like that. And you've got to remember the gut isn't just about poop. It's not about poop. The gut involves the gallbladder, the pancreas, the liver, the colon, the small intestines, the the mouth even. So the esophagus, there's so many things that are important to just our overall functioning that if we don't talk about it, we're doing ourselves a disservice. We are. And, you know, in terms of the work that I do with trauma, you know yourself, Using things like trauma-focused work, one of the first questions I say to somebody is, when you recall that memory, where do you feel it in your body? Nine times out of 10, people will say, oh, I get a funny feeling in my tummy because the hormones, neurotransmitters, emotions, gut instinct, like you said earlier, it's all happening in the center of our body. Some people will feel it in their chest, but actually they'll say it's stomach and chest. You yeah. know, it's, and I think it always starts from the stomach area, right. doesn't it? Yeah. Because of everything you've said, it's it's heavily sensitive. You know, there's lots of nerves there. It's very kind of responsible in terms of even for how it responds and reacts to neurotransmitters. Yes. So you have to remember, people always think neurotransmitters only have a positive impact. They also have negative, a negative yeah, impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, on that note, that's a really important one. I talk about this myself, about serotonin in particular. I'm not a doctor, so you could probably give us a bit more insight, especially with your more extensive knowledge on this. But my understanding that actually we can have too much serotonin as well. So explain that a little bit. Yeah. So look, serotonin, especially because um, it's most of it and significant amount, 95% of it's made in the gut and used within the gut. Only 5% is actually used or made within the brain, which is all that it needs. Just shows you that serotonin actually has a very important aspect on gut function, gut lining and integrity. So you need a perfect balance of what we call in the scientific world, homeostasis. Everything is within balance and we need a homeostasis response even for our neurotransmitters. Serotonin is interesting because actually we need it to support our digestive process in terms of how our gut digests foods and the the kind of the the muscle function of the gut itself. So too much serotonin or too little serotonin can have an an impact like IBS in terms of constipation or diarrhea. And actually too much serotonin actually causes um, diarrhea. And that's just because of how it's overstimulating the nerves and the gut response. And so it's not also about, does it make me feel good? It's about how it makes the, the gut feel good in terms of how it's responding. So you've definitely got to find a perfect balance of all of these neurotransmitters. Serotonin is also very, very interesting in such that before serotonin is made, And so the precursor before serotonin, it's extremely important to have a good biorhythm or a bioclock. So melatonin and tryptophan, which is a protein and neurotransmitter that people may have heard of, is a precursor to creating melatonin, which is then used to help make serotonin. Mm -hmm. So you can see that there's a balance between your sleep, your diet and lifestyle, and your overall mental well-being and capacity and how it can all impact serotonin as well. This is why I think you're going to have to be a repeat guest because there's so many aspects. Like you said, sex, poop, death. 
But we're also really looking at how do we get the best out of this system? Sleep is one of the most important things. And we live in a world where sleep is often seen as something that we just have to do and get out of the way so that we can crack on with this really busy lifestyle that we've got. It's the same with everything, isn't it? Let's just fit in the exercise. Let's just fit in the sleep amongst the stressful situations that we find ourselves in, be it at work or whatever, family life. And it goes back to your story a little bit, because I think storytelling is so important for people to really be able to relate. So you were very ill for a long time, but you were also going through changes in your personal life as well. But I think some of this is really relevant because it, it shows how the, the things that happen that are external in our lives affect the internal processes, which can exacerbate, if not sometimes cause the problem. You know, there's some arguments. I think a lot of doctors would say stress exacerbates existing problems, which which is very true. But I think sometimes those problems may never come to the surface if it wasn't for stress. We're tickling something when we have too much stress. And I use the word tickle because it's less offensive than a lot of words, but we are cultivating with stress, aren't we? So how much do you think, and this is a really difficult question to answer because you may not know this, but just from your experience as a clinician, but also having had lots of different um, problems with the gut health, how much do you think was lifestyle looking back? I mean, had you not have had some of the situations or traumas or whatever you've experienced, how much do you think your gut health would have affected you physically? So the one thing that I've definitely noticed anecdotally, but also from the experience of my clients and patients is that stress management has been one of the biggest significant factors in improving and reducing gut health issues and symptoms. And if we look at it from a scientific perspective, it makes sense. Stress can have such an impact on our body's physiological processes without us actually realizing, you know, not just mentally, but even from an immune system perspective. So if we look at a lot of these chronic issues, if we look at inflammatory bowel disease, we know actually from a kind of pathophysiological perspective, it starts from an overimmune response. You know, it's just the body attacking itself because it's recognizing normal body tissue as abnormal body tissue just because of things happening. We also know actually from some data out there that stress can impact very early on and quickly on the gut bacteria, creating a state of what we call dysbiosis, which favors the bad bacteria. Bad bacteria causes more inflammation within the gut. It compromises the gut lining, which then means that you've got more inflammatory markers circulating around your body, which then also impacts things like skin, you know, brain, lung, eye health. We're starting to see so many links between the gut bacteria and organs that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't surprise me that stress can be a trigger not the sole cause, but a trigger of other things going on. And when I look at it in terms of my own management from the question that you've asked, I could definitely probably say that stress and inherent dissociated capacities within me to deal with the stress of, you know, just cultural norms, my sexuality, my childhood trauma and other things that had gone on, it doesn't surprise me that the body took its toll Mm. And the gut being the largest kind of endocrine and neuroendocrine organ responded to it. So powerful because 
that takes us back to the vagus nerve. You mm. spoke about eyes and all the different organs that we now know can be affected by gut health. I've got two comments and questions really on this. Obviously, we know the. I, I think I said earlier the vagus nerve is like the spaghetti junction, and that's because it links to all of those main organs, including eyes, ears, heart, lungs, all of those things. So obviously, with the gut bacteria being out of balance, because it's all linked, we can see how that affects, especially through the vagus nerve, all the other organs as well. If I ask a new client about gut health, they sometimes look at me as though I'm a bit crazy. Like, why do you want to know? (laughs) It's a really personal question. But it's because it's such a good indicator of what's going on for somebody. It's funny you say this. I'm going to say something really personal. Just before I'm due on my period, I've always had a bit of a lazy eye, actually. Just before I'm due on my period, um, everything's slightly out of sync for most women during that week or week and a half. And menopausal women will probably say this as well. My lazy eye gets really tired and I struggle to make sure that the eye is, is moving properly. And it just shows the weakening of the muscle. And I end up having to do this and wink at people because my eye gets stuck. And I, I recorded a Zoom with someone the other day and I could see, it was about a week or two ago actually, and I could see that the eye was getting stuck more. And it just goes to show that tiredness, we talked about sleep very, very briefly there, melatonin, tiredness, um, hormones, everything has an effect on our body. And we know that all of those things are linked and massively affected by the gut. So you've just said a lot that people will never have heard before. Why do you think we don't know more about the gut? Why do you think this isn't taught in schools? Why do you think we're so behind with such an important element of our mind and and our body? Yeah, I think there's two reasons for that. I think first is it's always been a taboo subject. So I think because of that, you know, people struggle to talk about it and then want to actively research and look up things. Mm. It's, it's also because we've built up culturally, and I'm also talking about the medical culture, that instead of us looking at other causes of issues, we almost usually tend to think it must be something else and we assume the worst or we look for medication yes. and not realizing that actually the gut bacteria could be the reason to so many things. And then the second part of the answer is, is because the science just hasn't been as strong as it has been in the last five years. And the fact that it's evolving even more. I mean, if I look at now in terms of, you know, the, the amount of human studies that are coming out as opposed to just animal-based yes. studies, before it was just very much just to meet kind of clinical, kind of scientific kind of unmet questions and needs. And now it's actually, well, how do we translate this to humans? So there's more investment, there's more inquisitive minds looking into gut health and the impact. And it's because we, we've we definitely underestimated the power of the bacteria, basically. Yeah. And now I think we're definitely seeing it more. You've just used your case example of you know, when you are approaching the period or when you're menstruating or even ladies that go through the menopause, we just know outside of that, even just general fatigue and chronic fatigue syndromes, actually, if you do take sometimes a gut health first approach, it can have a positive impact on the brain, our tolerance, our thresholds, and just the way that we navigate natural issues that our body faces. It just helps our defense mechanisms overall. I don't know whether you find this more with female clients. I mean, I'm really open about myself because I think it's really important 
you know, when you're talking about the mind, to be mm. really open about the body as well, constipation is the thing for me. Mm. And, and mm. I know that's maybe partly psychological. It's about holding on, not wanting to let go. But we, you know, we can't just use that. Freudian theory, that sort of very anally retentive theory, you know, the anal phase of development. Everything you've said today is also about the neurotransmitters, the hormones, the, the gut bacteria, how stress impacts that. So let me ask you this question with me saying that, sort of looking at the psychology as well as the physiology. For you, mm. what comes first? If someone suffers with constipation, for example, you spoke about serotonin earlier and that the, the uh, too much serotonin, not enough serotonin. Would you say in your humble opinion and your your experience that the psychology comes first or the physiological side of us operates first okay i think this question is a very much like a chicken and egg question (laughs) i'm going to answer it such that i think because my clients present with the physiological aspects first Mm. as a clinician I end up looking and addressing the physiological aspects first, but we tend to always find that there is some psychological consequence or precursor to all of this. Putting aside functional disorders, I mean, functional disorder, I mean, IBS and other gut issues can happen functionally anyway, where it means it is, you know, physiological in consequence and that physiologically we need to address those issues. But that's not to say that, Underneath all that, and as a foundation, psychological well-being definitely helps and has a greater impact. There's only so much that one can do in terms of changing diet and lifestyle, whereas actually if you get down to the undercurrent and the root cause, you can definitely find that you can help people to get into remission. Yes. You know, if you can get more stress-free or flare-up days, that's a positive win, and that's what I aim to do. I will never say to any of my clients – I will cure you, cure you or rid you of this particular issue or ailment. You're always going to have that. What we can do is empower you to manage it and reduce the amount of flare-ups you get or understand what your main triggers are. So essentially what I'm hearing here is there can be some functional issues that are exacerbated by stress and that would be due down to other things such as nutrition, exercise, antibiotics, those kind of things. So What's the most common for you? Is it is it the lack of uh, good nutrition, good exercise, illnesses? You know that have had antibiotics needed. What what would you say yes. is common? So I mean, there, there is a few in terms of the most common issues that contribute to poor gut health, and for for most of my clients to come to me is nutrition, and that's usually lack of fibre. Yeah mainly so that's the biggest thing and we tend to find in the modern world and especially in like the uk for instance only nine percent of the population actually get their daily recommended allowance of 30 grams of fiber a day nine 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 yes single digits wow which is which is also kind of a, a biggest worry and one of the worries of kind of modern day health issues because we've become so accustomed and almost um kind of tied down to processed foods and kind of trans fats and things like that, which are low in fiber. Yeah, Processed foods and, you know, ready-made meals are characteristically low in fiber. So that's one thing, poor nutrition for sure. The other thing is if they have had long antibiotic use, we tend to find that definitely depletes the good bacteria. Mm. Thirdly, identifying that actually a lot of my 
patient profiles, or if we look at the profiles, it is actually stress in some way, shape, or form. I work with lots of kind of high-functioning, highly successful individuals. So stress is their driver almost. It's what they thrive and live on. Cortisol again. Yes, exactly. Cortisol, adrenaline, type A tendencies, you know, which then contributes to this cascade of lack of sleep. Yes. You know, poor immune system. So all of these things are a result of, mm. but they think it's, that's why they've had to come to me, that the problem is, can you just make me feel better? Ah. Or can you just, make, but actually we realize that it's not that, it's other things that are going it's on. It's multi-layered. It's the onion again. Definitely, definitely. And it's just, it's never, I would never say, I've not had one client where I've had to say, this is the sole reason or the sole kind of contributor to your issues because it's always so integrated. But definitely, I would say those are the top three. Antibiotics, less so just because of the profile of my clients. But we are seeing again in the modern world that there is this reliance and over reliance on antibiotics which is impacting antibiotic resistance, but also gut health um, outcomes as well. So the the movement side of it, you know, things like Tai Chi, yoga, meditation, would you say, because I always say to people, you know, these kind of mindfulness practices, these very sort of gentle movement, you know, especially things like Tai Chi and yoga, they are so beneficial for our Mm. gut as well. Can you explain why those particular types of exercises, rather than you going to the gym and pumping iron types of exercises are beneficial? Yeah. So I think it all goes, well, it definitely goes back down to this overstimulation or hypersensitivity of the vagus nerve and the gut itself. This is why, for instance, a lot of my clients that do come with burnout and you can see this cortisol drive, I will always say to them, running for an hour or doing cardio is actually going to make things worse, worse because our response to that, to that type of activity is actually more cortisol. Yes. So actually doing softer, gentler movement and practices like Tai Chi, the yogas, even just things like breath, you know, breath work and mindfulness, it actually helps to dampen down this overactivity of the vagus nerve, which then in turn is creating this hypersensitivity, overstimulation of your gut, which then causes these gut issues, is why it's so important to kind of have a balanced amount of exercise and different exercises. It's it's about variety, isn't it? Variety, exactly. The same way that I say to people, you should have a variety um, of in your diet, you should have a variety in movement. There's nothing wrong with it. I always also advocate strength and conditioning exercises for all people because it definitely helps in terms of bone density, muscle mass, and just overall condition especially in women's health as well you know things like pelvic floor exactly yeah. osteoporosis etc but balancing it with you know at least one to two days or one to two sessions of this gentler movement has definitely seen a positive impact and you know you're getting some science there was there was um a study out um a few weeks ago that showed you know buddhist monks found kind of more happier kind of lifestyle and less gut issues. And that's just purely because obviously what they're doing is 
not overstimulating their guts and the vagus nerve, but also we shouldn't discount the fact that they actually lead cleaner lives in terms of the diet yes. and the lifestyle as well. And we know that pollution, for instance, has such a strong impact now on the vagus nerve. Yes as well as smoking and things as well. So don't always just think about what's happening within your body. External environmental factors have a huge impact as well. I mean, what you've just said there is really powerful. I saw something just the other day about the external pollutants and, you know, Mm. how we are so unaware of just walking outside now, how detrimental mm-hmm. that is to our health. So it's about finding those clean spaces, like you say, to go. And, I mean, one of the things that as well as strength and conditioning and meditation is for me, walking, wherever there's a tree, I am going to be there for some point yeah. during the day. Um, because we need to be with that clean air in a quiet space where we can just, and I always say, turn your phones off. You know, I know this is a podcast, obviously, but don't listen to podcasts. Don't listen to me. Mm. Just turn your phone off, put it in your pocket, have it on silent, no notifications, walk for an hour slowly. You don't need to work up a sweat every time. Like you said, we don't always need to produce cortisol and and really just let your mind work things out. And I can tell when someone's paying attention to what I'm saying, because you can see their skin clears up. You can see Mm. that their nails are growing, their hair's growing. And it was everything you were saying earlier, because the gut is getting that beautiful message from the mind, you know, Mm. when we're taking care of ourselves and, and, and the hormones and the neurotransmitters and the bacteria. But for people that really struggle with fitting in meditation. They, some people say to me, I just cannot meditate. You know, I always say try walking without your phone, but you yeah. mentioned the bacteria there. So if someone really, really doesn't want to do the meditation, the mindfulness, the exercise, talk to me about um, prebiotics, probiotics, just for a moment, because okay. I think that's a massive part of what we believe to, we know about the gut. Yeah. So look, the bacteria, and we've got hundreds of trillions of them and different strains. One thing that we do know is they, in order for them to survive and be at their ultimate best, and for us to be at our ultimate best, we need diversity and abundance of the good bacteria. And in order to do that, we need to feed them. And that food source comes from prebiotic fiber. Mm-hmm. So this goes back to the fiber that we're talking about. There's different types of fiber, prebiotic fiber, there's resistant starch, soluble and insoluble, all have positive impact on gut function and beyond. Insoluble and soluble fiber help in terms of for our bowel movements, either to kind of bulk up the stool or to retain liquid so it's easier to pass. Okay. When it comes to resistant starch and prebiotic fibers, these are very interesting. So these exist in things like unripened bananas, um, in potato, um, more so cold potato, in like Jerusalem artichokes, oats, for instance, things that provide what we would say is classic roughage is also plant fibers that actually fermented by the bacteria in the colon, which helps feed and nourish them, but also create as a byproduct, these compounds called short chain fatty acids. And the most common ones in short chain fatty acids are propionate, butyrate, and acetate. Butyrate is the one that's most well documented because this has a positive function on brain health in terms of maintaining our blood brain barrier, helping neurotransmitter production and function, and so many other things as well. So fiber is extremely important because it provides that fuel. 
Wow. Now, the other thing that a lot of people talk about is probiotics. Probiotic is essentially a product that has um, live sources of organisms. Now, this can be a combination of bacteria, yeast, fungi, etc. So you may have seen a lot of probiotic yogurts and supplements and things like that. So this will contain particular strains, one or more, um, that have shown scientifically to have a positive impact on health. And it's counted in kind of colonizing forming units. So the higher the number, the more kind of strains of bacteria or the number of units of bacteria it has. That doesn't mean, um, for instance, that the more it has, the more beneficial it's going to have. There's no science that has shown that actually quantity helps over quality. Mm. And this is where it's important. So a lot of people, and I would say probiotics are usually indicated, especially in my practice, for those that have been on long-term antibiotic use, because antibiotics deplete the good bacteria. And actually, it's not selective. It depletes a lot of the bacteria anyway. If you do have a gut health issue, or if you've had gut surgery, now there is a reliance on probiotics because people do see a positive somatic impact of it. Yes. So this is where I say to people, it's again about balance. There are natural sources of probiotics, you know, sauerkraut, kimchi, fermented foods and fermented teas like kombucha, kefir water, tofu, miso, natto. They're all amazing as natural sources of probiotics. And it's far better for the body to process and break down as a natural source, especially because it's also going to provide you sustenance so it's also going to help if we're talking about gut brain link i mean you spoke about hunger hormones before also in terms of just that satiation element as well yes you know so i would always say look at natural sources because you can never 100 confirm the quality of a supplement anyway on that note actually for some of those foods you mentioned like the sauerkrauts and the kimchi and those they can have quite a profound effect on someone if they're not used to eating yes. them yeah, this is the thing with anything in terms of also if you're increasing fiber as well, because the gut now is almost shocked. Yes. And also the bacteria are now fermenting more. You're going to start noticing that you may pass wind more. Yeah. You're going to notice more bloating and cramping as well. I will, I will say the reason why a lot of people get these symptoms is because as soon as they get onto their like probiotic flex, they'll start saying that, oh, I'm eating a whole bowl of kimchi. And actually you don't need to, you only need a tablespoon a day yeah. of fermented food. And you can mix it in That's a salad, you can't you? Yeah, exactly. And also when it comes to like nuts and nuts, beans, pulses, legumes, pre-soak them so it's easier for the gut to digest and break down. And that's why you get the trapped air and wind yes. as well. But slowly increase the amount of fibre that you can And can eat take. slowly as well. Yes. And this is where mindful eating is so positive Correct. as well. Yeah. You know, mindfulness around eating definitely helps the digestive process as well. We tend to find that actually if we do switch off and focus on eating more, we'll chew more. It will help the digestive processes. It will help the bacteria. And in turn, you don't get a lot of these issues because outside of all that is if we're not in tune with what we're eating we tend to overeat yes and if we overeat it's a burden on the gut and then this is when you start getting the over fermentation and then we start getting other issues around the gut as well because there are so many things we can talk about and i, and I do hope you come back because i think this was a really big topic to tackling one go and i and i, I would mm. hope that those people that are listening to this and sort of think, gosh, there's so much information. There's almost too much that we can start to break it down because it is such an, this is what, this is why I really wanted you on and, and hopefully you'll come back for more if you can. For sure. 
you're like an encyclopedia of knowledge about the gut. Like I don't know anybody that could talk as extensively just because of your personal experiences, as well as all of this sort of educational medical experience that you have. We've literally touched on so many different elements today that it's impossible to fit it all in. But one thing that, you know, I wanted to really pick up on there is this idea of mindful eating. Something you said about is is eating too much, rushing the food. How does one start with that? And and also in that, what what's your thoughts on on fasting as well? So I uh, think fasting in the scientific sense, which is time restricted eating, which is having a particular window where you're not eating, and it's different protocols. You can have sixteen, eight protocol, or others. It can, and it has been shown in particular populations, it has a positive impact in terms of health outcomes and also gut health outcomes. And namely, I would say in the diabetic population, actually, we tend to find that actually poor diabetes outcomes happen because of kind of sugar spikes or erratic sugar control and insulin resistance, which then leads kind of more kind of um, fat cells um, to be stored and fat storage. So this is where it definitely has a positive impact, where studies have found that if you have breakfast and kind of a late lunch um, and not have dinner, it's enough to satiate you and to help in terms of weight management, mind, you know, kind of mental well-being and other processes as well. Where fasting goes wrong is when people lean too much on fasting and then start doing things like these cleanses and kind of, you know, these juice fasting and things like that, because we know it has a profound negative impact as opposed to the positive. All it's doing is calorie restricting in a very short window of time. And the reason I've brought up fasting as well as mindful eating for you is because one of the things in the introduction is that you have this uh, specialism in, in addiction with mm. with sort of food addiction and fasting can quickly become addictive my understanding is certain hormones are released as well when we fast which can make us feel very very good but also that the impact of fasting is obviously going to be some weight loss so if mm. we're looking at and i see this a lot actually disordered eating and so on and so forth fasting can quickly become a bit problematic can't it yeah, it can definitely snowball depending on the person and what their behavioral kind of reason for fasting was. Because what they basically are doing, as you've rightly said, is most people will fast to get that quick weight loss yeah. and see it as that feeding the system and that feedback loop of hormones yeah. and endorphins just to keep saying, actually, it's working, carry on. But it has a detrimental effect down the line. This is when people will start saying, well, actually, I feel like I'm ill more. I'm not sleeping yes. well. From a, a superficial vanity perspective, I don't look my best anymore. Yeah. And this, this is why it leans into mindful eating, but also that point you made earlier when people struggle, if they say, well, I can't meditate for hours on end and I don't even meditate full stop, is I will always say, even with mindful eating, it's small habitual changes. Yes. All it does is it takes five minutes a day. Yeah. Meditation for you is going to be very different to the definition of meditation for me. Yeah. Sometimes it's just actually closing the laptop and just taking some breaths and just being in the moment. Sometimes it could be just walking around your room yeah. with no other distraction. That is still mindfulness. Yes. And that's the same thing with food. I mean, we spend so much time and money on food. 
it, you know, I always say to my clients, why do you not then make the time for food itself? Have that restaurant experience at home. Mm. You don't always need that restaurant experience and throw it on, you know, service charges and tips and all the other kind of um, overheads that we tend to pay for. You can have a restaurant at home. It literally is just savoring and making most of all of your senses when you are eating. Yeah. And that definitely has a positive impact. You know, if people traditionally are only eating, you know, their meals within 10, 15 minutes, all I say to them is add another five minutes and make that into a 20 minute meal. That's all I'm asking. Once you've done 20 minutes, then turn that into a 25 minute meal mm. and then a 30 minute, mm. minute meal. That doesn't mean that you need to eat more. It just means you're spending more time honoring your body and that meal that you rightfully have served yourself to eat and honor your body with. That's the tagline, serving yourself. Mm. Because there's something really beautiful about serving yourself with food, but also having that uh, social aspect with eating at home. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be in a restaurant, like you say. And we've we've lost that sense of community with food, mm. um, I feel, because people are rushing when they're driving or, at the, you know, at their desks, at their laptops or whatever. And they're not mm. sitting with people and getting the whole experience of mm. bonding. We mentioned oxytocin earlier, but bonding, spending time with people that you love, taking your time, putting your knife and fork down in between bites, savoring the food being grateful and practicing gratitude and mindfulness at the same time for food and for people. All of those things give us such a lovely burst of all the positive neurotransmitters, but also just feeling connected, which has a profound impact on the gut. So these are the things you spoke about the, the Buddhist monks there. These are the things they do. They eat together. They're together. There's a connection. There's a community. They take their time that like you say very simple things and we're not expecting anyone to turn into a buddhist <laughs> unless they want unless they want to in <laughs> yeah. which case i'm all in favor but it's more about starting with something small isn't it even if you're only going to eat yeah. or, or drink a smoothie on the go just stop for five minutes to really go oh do you know what that mango is really popping <laughs> you know it's just it, that exactly yeah exactly just savor that point and that moment in time i mean everything's always going to rush past us anyway yeah. and i think that's what you've said and just, just the simple things i think we forget like you know just putting your knife and fork mm. down instead of having ready it's almost like we're just this conveyor belt and that's the other issue it comes with digestive processes just our normal digestion people are starting to complain more about actually they feel that their digestion has slowed down yes you know it's just because one it's not the right fibers but also it's just because we just aren't allowing that brain and gut connection sure um, to happen and you've got to remember digestion happens way before we start chewing and putting the food into our mouth yes. it starts way before because we've started anticipating yes. the food we've already started evoking other senses smell sight yes thought yes and so if you're going to do that you need to honor that whilst you're eating as well to provide the sufficient time and that just goes with the other things we've mentioned about movement, small things, five minutes. If, if you feel actually look, going out is an issue, start growing houseplants. We've started seeing positive science around green within yeah. kind of our own spaces. And at least that way you're controlling the, the pollutants, et cetera. There's always small practical ways of doing this without spending lots and lots of money. That's so impactful what you've just said there, because basically... It's the old saying, where there's a will, there's a way. 
And it's finding yes. the way for you as an individual. Because one of the things that bugs me really about mental health, physical health, is this idea of perfection. You know, if I can do this for 20 minutes a day and if I can go out for a walk for half an hour, if I can meditate for 10 minutes and if I can eat mindfully. And actually, by the end of the day, you've got a whole list of things you've got to do in order to be healthy. But something like houseplants or, you know, you mentioned there just walking around your room, you know, laptop shut, no phone on, just breathing or sitting somewhere still for five minutes breathing. Even if it's not planned, it's like, oh, I've got five minutes. Let me just sit and take a few deep breaths, listen to the birds outside, you know, eating away from the desk, even if it's just, I don't know, sitting in a room on your own, really taste, even if it's just a protein bar, really taste the protein bar. So many simple little takeaways. But obviously in, I think, 45 minutes or an hour now, we've touched on a lot of separate little subjects. So One of the things I will try and do and encourage people to do is to send some questions or comments because then it'd be great to have you back and really focus on, on maybe even sleep and, you know, exercise and just really hyper-focus on those things to give a bit more detail of, of actionable points. But you've given us some really good actionable points already, just bringing plants into the house. If you don't have the time to go out every day, you know, sitting and taking your time to eat. I mean, Really, those two things would probably make over a period of time some some noticeable difference. But I think it's consistency that's key, isn't it? For sure. And look, there is no perfect plan, as we say. You do you. Yeah. And if you're honouring you, your gut and your brain will serve you for sure. Yeah. As opposed to thinking that there's a one size model that fits all, yes. you know, a cookie cutter approach does not it work. It does not so work. You're right. Exactly. So do you in your own way and your well-being will, will come in. And there's obviously certain pillars that you should always follow. We've mentioned five, but just make sure you're adding variety to your meals. Yes. And then once you do that, you can start thinking, well, how am I going to mindfully eat? You know, if you're adding movement, what are the things that you're doing outside and what can you bring inside? It's always those little things as opposed to saying, I'm going to go all in because we know from a behavioral science perspective and a psychological science perspective, you know, that's when a lot of people then don't commit by over committing already and you fail. And things we've seen actually, the positive impact of just kind of particular mental well-being and psych- creating psychological safety and how it impacts positive health outcomes. Yes. You know, just a positive attitude, being emotionally regulated, finding your own mental resilience, and then actually being that social connected and practicing gratitude, for instance, has shown that actually that has a positive impact as well. You know, there's things like green equity now. We talk about green equity in the socioeconomic models. Green equity is just more about finding green space is that has a far more positive impact than saying, right, I'm going to go to the pub and have a drink with my friends. And actually it's not the alcohol, it's the connection with the friends that has more of a positive impact. Yes. I was talking about this with someone yesterday about, you know, the old days when people go to the pub and you'd get someone playing the spoons and someone playing the piano. And, you know, it was that sense of community and just that's what we lack because we're all we, I love the way you've put that because we are all in our own little worlds now and we're not connecting the way that we used to. But there is such a broader experience out there if you're looking for it, if you want it. Overall, I think for me, knowing that there's such a connection between the mind and the gut and, and really, like you say, serving yourself 
the things that you do for your mind, you're also doing for your gut. And the things that you're doing for your gut with that bi-directional thing, you're also doing for your mind. So mm. they're like best friends, aren't they? Yeah. The sort of the idea of it being the second brain. I think we've covered that with the idea of, you know, the the second brain being the place where a lot of these neurotransmitters are also produced. If you could put it into one sentence, how important would you say it is to to really start rather than thinking about the things that you could do in terms of mental health? How important do you really think overall it is to to prioritize gut health? I can say it in one word, very. <laughs> no, it's, it's, I mean, the one thing I would say to you, the reason why I say that is because in all of the conditions that I support people with, and some of these, bear in mind, aren't kind of fatal or chronic conditions. These are as simple as sometimes burnout or fatigue. Some people just come to me with acne, for instance, you know, or navigating the menopause. Taking a gut health first approach or a centered approach has paid huge dividends, not just to my patients, but to my own life. That in itself shows you and shows me and confirms the importance. So, you know, it's whatever hyperbolic, superfluous word I can use beyond very, it's like the only thing for me. The gut is the center of all health. Powerful. So where can people find you if they want to find out more? Yep. So you can find me either on Instagram, which is um, at Dr. Sunny Patel, um, as well as TikTok. And then my website, which has recipes and scientific articles. And if you want a book to kind of work with me is on www.dish-deets.com. And if anyone puts your name into Google... I'm sure they're going yes. to find lots of interesting stuff there too. <laughs> yes, you'll see lots of things that I've done for lots of media, um, from the BBC to the ITV to lots of different national press. But yes, Google my name and you'll also see my website there where you can then reach out to me. Thank you, honestly, for doing this. I mean, again, I feel like we've just touched the surface. <laughs> I feel like this is incomplete work, which is, it is. That's you know... It's always ongoing, the gut. But no, I want to say thank you for having me. It's always a privilege and an honor to be able to talk, one, someone like your caliber mm. and of what you do. But also just, you know, these platforms are so important yeah. to just start telling people and to keep shouting from the rooftops the power of the gut. Yes. And, and you know, I feel privileged and honored because I know the impact that you have on people's lives. So the fact that we can just share a little bit you know, and it, you really do. And I know that firsthand because we, we do work with some of the same people. So I know the, I know yeah. the impact you have and it's profound. So I'm very lucky that you would come on here to talk today. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. So I would like to finish with saying, if you have any questions about anything we've talked about, please drop me a line at hello at the new And also do hit the subscribe button and share so people can find us organically. Thank you, Dr. Sunny. See you all next time.